Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. And it's March. You know, that time of year when shit comes back from the dead. So of course we're talking zombies. Right. It's our yearly mission to bring you zombies every March. That's right. It's a mission statement. Mm-hmm. It's our March mission statement. March. March. Yes. So... Twos and threes of years ago, we started with Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead, and then we went into Day of the Dead the next year? Yep. Yeah, and uh, so this year we're going to continue in George Romero's series with Land of the Dead and then Diary of the Dead, and over on Patreon, we shall be diving into a little film called Survival of the Dead. Little film indeed. But for this episode... Land of the Dead is a 2005 post-apocalyptic horror film written and directed by George A. Romero and is the fourth installment of his six-part Living Dead films. The plot revolves around a zombie attack on Pittsburgh where a feudal-like government has arisen during the zombie apocalypse. Survivors have fled to the Golden Triangle section of the city, which is protected by rivers on two sides and an electric fence called The Throat on the third. The film stars Simon Baker, John Luizamo, Dennis Hopper, Asia Argento, and Big Daddy himself, Eugene Clark. Land of the Dead would be one of the only times that Romero worked within the Hollywood system rather than independently, with many thinking he was finally going to be given the proper tools to make a large-budget horror film. He would return to his normal filmmaking style with the last two installments of the franchise after learning a very hard lesson about this one. That's right. Okay, listeners... It takes a true friend to stab you in the front, doesn't it? This is certainly a movie. Land of the Dead. (laughs) (laughs) The world as we know it. They must be destroyed. Is no more. Cities are under siege. The land of the living has become. Feeding up human flesh. The land of the dead. If these creatures ever develop the power to think, to reason, we're all dead. In one last outpost. It was my ingenuity that took an old world and made it into something new. We have survived. Rivers protect us on two sides. I put up the fences to make it safe. And these fences go all the way across? Both ways. But if the living can adapt... Things are changing. These guys are not just walking. So can the dead. It's like they're pretending to be alive. They're mindless walking corpses. They'll never get across the river. toward the city. There's nothing there, man. They're communicating. They're thinking. Ah! We're going back to see if we can help. Trouble? In a world where the dead are returning to life, the word trouble loses much of its meaning. We're running out of time. J. Romero's Land of the Dead. Zombies, man. They creep me out.
The living dead continue to hold domain over the earth, but the scattered remnants of human civilization have reorganized enough to establish protected outposts across the United States. One such outpost is the city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and it contains a feudal-like government, bordered on two sides by rivers and on a third by an electrified fence guarded by a militia. The city has become a sanctuary in which its citizens live in relative security. Outside the city's barriers is a no-man's land of barren countryside and dilapidated suburban towns, long deserted by living humans, but overrun with legions of walkers. The rich and powerful live in a luxury high-rise called Fiddler's Green. (laughs) While the rest of the population subsists in squalor. All forms of commerce within the protected zone are controlled by Paul Kaufman, played by Dennis Hopper, the city's ruthless plutocratic ruler. He has sponsored Dead Reckoning, an armored personnel vehicle that can travel through the zombie-infested areas with ease. Riley Denbo, stupid name played by Simon Baker, is the designer and commander of the Dead Reckoning. Unlike Kaufman, Riley is respected for his work in protecting the citizens, as well as providing them with food and medical supplies that the citizens can no longer safely acquire themselves. Using Dead Reckoning, Riley and his crew, including Charlie, played by Robert Joy, a man he once rescued, who now vehemently protects him, venture into areas overrun with zombies to scavenge for necessary supplies. They also retrieve luxury items, such as designer clothing and top-shelf brands of liquor, as these things can offer powerful means of bartering within Kaufman's oppressive, oligarchic regime. On one mission, they noticed many zombies exhibit intelligent behavior. Ugh. This was especially seen in one such zombie, Big Daddy, played by Eugene Clark, formerly a gas station attendant. During the mission, rookie Mike is bitten by a zombie and commits suicide before he turns. After the mission, Riley retires from commanding the Dead Reckoning. Grown weary of a hard scrabble life in a post-apocalyptic city, he plans to leave the urban sanctuary for the open road to Canada once repairs on his car are finished. Back in the city, he visits Chihuahua's bar. There, he sees a prostitute named Slack being forced into a cage with some zombies to entertain guests. Riley and Charlie save Slack, played by Asia Argento, and Charlie kills Chihuahua in the ensuing chaos. Riley, Charlie, and Slack are arrested. Slack reveals that Kaufman ordered her execution for helping Mulligan to instigate rebellion among the poor. Meanwhile, Cholo de Mora, Racist name, played by John Leguizamo. <laughs> Dead Reckoning's second-in-command is denied an apartment in Fiddler's Green, despite his service to Kaufman. In retaliation, Cholo takes over Dead Reckoning and threatens to destroy Fiddler's Green with it if Kaufman does not comply. Kaufman approaches Riley and asks him, as well as Charlie and Slack, to retrieve Dead Reckoning. They are supervised by Menelete, Motown, and Pillsbury. On the way, Menelete is bitten by an almost headless zombie priest and then killed by Slack. After catching up with Dead Reckoning, Riley approaches the vehicle alone. Charlie, Slack, and Pillsbury follow him after subduing Motown and leaving her behind. Realizing Riley's working for Kaufman, Chola holds both Riley and Charlie at gunpoint. As he prepares to fire Dead Reckoning's missiles at Fiddler's Green, Riley uses a small device and deactivates Dead Reckoning's weapons systems. He then destroys the device. Motown, who had regained consciousness, opens fire and nearly kills both Riley and Cholo, who's maimed by one of the gunshots. She's bitten by a zombie and killed by Slack. Riley convinces Cholo to allow him to escape north and join him, but the latter decides to return to Fiddler's Green to deal with Kaufman. His partner, Foxy, accompanies him. While en route, Cholo is bitten by a zombie and leaves to kill Kaufman by himself. 
Riley takes over Deb Reckoning once again and returns to Fiddler's Green. Elsewhere, Big Daddy, who has been gathering a large group of zombies, learns that they can safely walk underwater and leads the zombies across the river to the human city where they breach a section of the perimeter fence. Hopelessly outnumbered, the border guards abandon their posts. As a result of the zombies swarming into the once secure areas of the city, the electrified fences that once kept the zombies out have now become a wall to trap them and the humans inside. Seeing the city overrun, Kaufman runs with his money and encounters a zombie cholo in the parking garage. As the two struggle, Big Daddy kills both with an exploding propane tank. Riley's group arrives to the city only to come upon a raised drawbridge. Riley leaves to bring the bridge down, but a small group of zombies begin to attack Dead Reckoning. Riley and the others manage to dispose of and evade the zombies, but after crossing the bridge, they helplessly witness people being killed by them. Realizing it's too late to save them, they mercy kill them with missiles. <laughs> it's then revealed that most of the poor people were led to safety by Mulligan, thus surviving the assault. Riley and Mulligan share a well-meaning goodbye as they split up with their groups. As they see Big Daddy and the zombies leaving the city, sparing the surviving humans, Riley decides to leave them alone, as well as the zombies do the same, citing that they're just looking for a place to go to. While lighting up the rest of the fireworks, which were earlier used to distract zombies but are now useless, since they do not distract the horde anymore, apparently, Riley's group set off for Canada on Dead Reckoning. <laughs> the end, and if you followed any of that, you're a savant, I know. <laughs> oh my god. Stupidest synopsis ever. <clears throat> wow, those names. So many names. Land of the Dead was released on June 24th, 2005 on 2,250 screens and grossed a little more than $10 million opening weekend, securing the number five spot at the box office. Other films in the top ten that weekend included Batman Begins, Bewitched, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and Herbie, Fully Loaded. <laughs> the film continued to fall in the box office, reaching number 14 by its third week in release. By week four, it landed at number 22. Ultimately, Land of the Dead would gross $48.6 million against a reported budget of 15 to $19 million, which is the second highest budget given to him during his career. What was the highest? Uh, Creepshow. Okay. Land of the Dead holds a 74% on Rotten Tomatoes and is certified fresh, while the audience score sits at 51%. The site's consensus reads, George Romero's latest entry into his much-vaunted Dead series is not as fresh as his genre-inventing original, Night of the Living Dead. But Land of the Dead does deliver on the gore and zombies feasting on flesh action. Metacritic assigned the film a grade of 71, indicating generally favorable reviews. I don't see how. Hmm. Rod Roger Ebert gave the film three stars out of four for what he considered its skillful and creative illusions, something that he argued was pervasive among Romero's previous three installments, which contained numerous satirical metaphors to American life. Ebert noted that this installment's distinction between the rich and the poor, those that live in Fiddler's Green and those that live in the slums. Michael Wilmington of the Chicago Tribune awarded the film four stars, writing, It's another hard-edged, funny, playful, pervasive, and violent exercise in the movie Fear and Loathing with an increasingly dark take on a world spinning out of control. By now, Romero has become a classicist who uses character and dialogue as much as stomach-churning effects to achieve his shivers. The New York Sun declared it the American movie of the year. God, how are they sucking his cock? 
for real. Nick Shager called the film about as lively as a piece of roadkill. <laughs> Michael Atkinson of The Village Voice wrote, Romero's fourth grade dialogue doesn't help matters, but anyone seeking out the latest achievements and cranial ruptures, spewing blood gouts and ground beef spillage need look no further. Entertainment Weekly called the film listless and uninspired. <laughs> I have to say they're a little bit more in line with my expectations or my experience with the film. Yeah. I mean, I have to agree. That I don't script know. was not anything to home write home about. No, the script is terrible. And I'm sure, sure that we'll get into that. Oh yeah. It does have a few accolades though. At the Saturn awards, it was nominated for best horror film and best makeup at the golden <laughs> schmoes. Here they are again. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how these, We've never covered these before, and yet they keep popping up now. Is someone like just going through Wikipedia, adding the Golden Schmoes to every? <laughs> you know, it was nominated for best horror film there at the Teen Choice Awards, the equivalent of the Oscars. It was nominated for Choice Summer Movie, Razor, <laughs> Razor. <laughs> All right, so he put together a cast. I'm not going to say a good cast, but he did certainly create a cast. It certainly was a cast. Yes. Led by Simon Baker, who is a very good-looking piece of cardboard. That's right. He is a good-looking piece of cardboard. Very plain. Yes. But super Mm good-looking. I kept thinking he looked like a statue, like one of those old Greek statues of, like, Apollo. Yeah. I mean, he has, like, a classically pretty face. The hair, like, never moves. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like, he acts in a way that he doesn't have to change a facial expression ever. Yeah, some of those necessary supplies I was noticing have got to include hair gel. Mm -hmm, Mm -hmm. For sure. He was stealing hair gel every time he went to one of those little suburbs. Meanwhile, one of the only good things about this film, John Liguifuckingzamo. Yes, please, as Cholo. (laughs) God, I hate that name. (laughs) So Cholo DeMora. I mean, for a person who is sort of attributed to having very sensitive race relations in horror films, right? George Romero <laughs> wrote this movie and he named someone Cholo and apparently Chihuahua. Yes, but I think there's some reasons for some antiquated references there and we'll get into that a little bit later as well. Okay. But needless to say, John Leguizamo is always fun to see. He's a delight. Yes. Meanwhile, we've got Dennis Hopper as our main baddie. Also a delight. Which, you know, really, I mean, like he's always mad to me at everything I've ever seen him in. I'm like, why is he on screen? He somehow slipped through the cracks. I don't know. I always think about Blue Velvet and I am drawn to him, kind of. Although I expect Dennis Hopper to be over the top all the time when he's in film, you know? And when he's not, eh, I mean, like I can see the kind of meh response, right? And in this, he's kind of meh. He just plays like a rich guy. He just shows up and says his lines. I don't. You know, yeah, like, he really does. You're right. He's just like fiddler's green, dead reckoning, money. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And then, you know, I'm in the movie because my father's best friends with the director, Asia Argento, is also in it. Yeah. I mean, but I like Asia Argento in this movie. Sure. So <laughs> maybe not in real life. Yeah. Uh, and then Robert Joy, who's always fun to see as Charlie Hook. And he, um, he he had to like burn prosthetics on him right because he was the guy that was saved by mm-hmm. Simon Baker's character Riley Denbo or Denbo. Riley <laughs> <laughs> Denbo. <laughs> uh, anyway, he's like a he's like a crack shot and he's like, I can see. Uh he's like licking his gun uh-huh. for those shots. And he he's licks like the sight. Yeah, he licks the sights on his gun and he's like, I can see the light reflecting or whatever. And I'm like, so he turns around, he's seeing the light reflecting 
from behind him, there's Asia Argento, and then there's a zombie behind her. He sees the light for that, and it's like two feet away. <laughs> I'm like, mm, okay, there's a better, more cinematic way to showcase this talent. It's a crack shot. Oh my god! <laughs> and they play him as kind of simple, right? <clears throat> yeah. Right? He simple Rick, mentally challenged. <laughs> I know he's super dedicated to Denbo, though. So, yeah. God. Okay, and then we got Eugene Clark as Big Daddy Zombie, and that's literally how they credited him as Big Daddy Zombie. I Big guess. Daddy Zombie. Yeah. I mean, that's what it says on his uh, coveralls, Big Daddy. Meanwhile, we've got some cameos, right? We've got Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright as the photo booth zombies. Did you notice them? I did not actually. Yeah. Oh my god! I did notice Tom Savini. Yes, as a. Uh, Blades the Machete Zombie, mm-hmm. which, of course, was the motorcycle rider in uh, Dawn of the Dead right. way back in the 70s. And Gregory Nicotero, the protege of Tom Savini, as a bridgekeeper zombie. Yeah, and he also did the makeup effects for this movie. He was head of makeup. Yes, much better than Tom Savini. Thank you. Yes. I did notice that the zombie effects were much better in this movie. They were. But Nicotero got much better in his career with zombies, especially around the time that The Walking Dead was starting. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, Oh, definitely. Well, let's talk about the background of this movie a little bit. And there's not much. Uh, I'm sure there's like commentary and, uh, and other things around that I just didn't get into, but mm-hmm. I did do some sleuthing. Okay. Yeah. So Romero didn't want this to be part of the official Night of Universe. He just wanted to make an original zombie movie, right? Okay. Um, and he wanted the film to be called Dead Reckoning after that stupid car. Mm. Mm-hmm. But 20th Century Fox wanted to force him into uh, an Of the Dead title uh, by actually buying the franchise to force him in, into doing that. But he refused to work with them outright. And that sounds like a very Romero thing to do. Yeah. Well, you he's know. used to being an independent filmmaker. And he'll you know, buck the system. You know? More power to him. However, the film ended up being produced by four different production companies and distributed by Universal. And it still ended up with the title Fox wanted, <laughs> which was an of the dead title, Land of the Dead. And I mean, I feel like that's the smart choice to go. If you're going to have George Romero's name attached to a movie about zombies, it yeah. needs to have of the dead. I don't it. know what he was thinking. And he must have been conflicted on that himself, since at least part of the movie is based on the original longer script for day of the dead oh really yes and so that could be where a lot of those antiquated names come from okay i guess that makes more sense now yeah because i was watching this movie right which came out in 1985 right right? so it makes a little bit more sense so like 20 years yeah passed before this you know iteration of the franchise has come out right yeah when we deep dove uh day of the dead we know that it's only like the third act or the third and fourth acts of that script that actually got made Mm -hmm. right it's kind of like the post-apocalyptic version of the post-apocalyptic movie he wanted to make which is land of the dead so really technically if you wanted to watch these in like the spiritual order you would watch land of the dead before you watch day of the dead day of the dead I mean, that kind of makes sense, I guess. Yeah, that does. I mean, I, ugh, now I feel like I need to watch them in that particular order just to see if it makes any more sense. Although I it mean, won't because of the, the technology difference. And yeah. The look, you know, he also, you know, I feel like he was more influenced by a lot of people. I feel like there might have been some too many cooks in the kitchen because this really does not feel as much like a Romero film as some of his others. And it kind of feels paint by numbers. Yeah, I do agree. I mean, because I I feel like there's a specific message in a lot of his other zombie movies, right? And there's certainly a message here. It's loud and clear. There is, but it's, I prefer my Romero to be a little bit more subtle. Yes. 
You know, I think I think it works better when it's a little bit more subtle and you have to like draw your own conclusions on things. Because mm-hmm. I mean, like it wasn't until our conversation on Day of the Dead that I really started to realize some of the things that he was talking about. Like it took me all that time to like sort of suss it out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Night of the Living Dead is showing, not telling. Right. Uh, you know, versus Dawn of the Dead. It tells a little bit, but mm-hmm. it's mostly showing. And then David is kind of the same. And then we have this explosion of hitting you over the head. That's right. In this and, one. and it does. I mean, like from the get go, this movie is clearly about a distinction in class. Look right? at that ivory tower over there. I know. <laughs> Literally like lit up. It's the only thing lit up. You know, <laughs> Even the zombies are looking at it from afar going like, let's go over there. Yeah. I mean, and he creates this whole like like case system of people um, like either in the streets, like surviving as best they can. And then we see like people living as though nothing is happening. Right. We have waiters and restaurants and little birds and shit like that. I yeah. mean, he doesn't really try it to hide of, what he's trying to say. It kind of felt like a kind of a callback to like, hey, here's Dawn of the Dead with these people. But what if someone with a lot of like business ingenuity, you know, and a lot mm-hmm. more people at his disposal had access to that kind of a building, you know, and it's get another the large building horror. You know, oh my God. <laughs> we could add to our list or something. That's right. Real estate all over the place. But I, I have to I have to feel like this, whatever producers he found to pay for this, whatever he did, there was a lot of cooks in the kitchen. I have to guess because there's not much I mean, without an actual, you know, talking to Romero himself, you know, or some sort of published source, I have to have some conjecture here. And listeners, if you have any inside information or information that I haven't seen, please let me know. But I, I feel like this is this may be a reaction, you know, not only just led by the uh, by Romero, who'd waited 20 years, but this feels like kind of a reaction to D- the Dawn of the Dead Zack Snyder remake, which Romero was at least slightly involved with, right? And it's like, well, here's my take. You know what I mean? And it seemed like, hey, this is me doing a Zack Snyder film versus, you know, which of course itself was a reaction to Romero and an homage to Romero. So it's like he's he's paying homage through the lens of Zack Snyder to himself, you know, through all of these studio heads and, you know, um, meddling from producers and, and of course from his own outlook having having seen that you know and, and it's honestly i hate to say it Zack snyder made a better romero movie than he did in those two yeah. years i mean you can go back and listen to our deep dive into that snyder version of, of dawn of the dead right and i think we both think very highly about that movie i remember when this was coming out and i was very excited for it because i really really yeah. enjoyed that dawn of the dead remake right i saw it several times in the theater and watched it a lot when it came out on dvd and so when they announced that romero was making another movie and it was kind of be like big budget right and i feel like horror fans were like finally we're going to get to see something you know that he's going to create he has yeah, lots more money at his disposal, right? We know who's going to be doing the the zombie effects and whatnot, and so I think a lot of people were really excited for it, and it just turned out, at least in my opinion, to be kind of a dud. Yeah, yeah especially in comparison with his earlier work, and and maybe that's not not fair, but I I do as much of a problem as I have with Zack Snyder for his overall zoom out career. Yes. Dawn of the Dead is one of his better movies. Agreed. Right. And his better work is based on other people's, you know, originality. But Zack Snyder has a polish and a filmmaking like eye, technical eye to how to make a movie in a very new way. Like Dawn of the Dead, when it came out, looked very new. It was like a paradigm shift. Like, I think we noted that when we saw it because that trailer 
mm-hmm. you know, looked very, very new way to portray zombies. And, right. you know, um, wasn't the first one uh, by far, but it just looked really good. He has this music video, like crispness to his films and, and, and Romero doesn't Romero is much more documentarian style. That's right. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I really wished he had stayed close to his original way of filmmaking, because I do not like the way this was shot for no. its story. It, it, like you can support the, Like I did some research on this. I'm like, I don't like this angles. I don't like how he's done this. Like his partnerships changed the way he went about making this changed. Obviously it was a bigger budget than he was used to. There's more moving parts than he's used to. And to support this, like I was looking at the different uh, films that he's done. And this is the only one, the one and only time that he's done a film in this extremely wide cinema scope aspect ratio of 2.35 to one. Usually that's reserved for like the large epics, a cinema scope, right? Like Lawrence of Arabia or something. You know what I mean? Usually he uses more like standard wide screen formats that one eight five to one or even boxier formats that lent to a lot more realism or even like a documentary like look that's that lends itself to the kind of the, the message movie tongue-in-cheek documentarian style that we know george romero to be really good at with night of and, and dawn of you know well in other films too i feel like i mean yes you're right this movie doesn't look like a romero movie at all i mean other than the blocking right there's the, the very romero-esque zombie blocking and dramedy happening on the screen you know, but other than that, it doesn't look like a Romero film. It doesn't feel like a Romero film either. I mean, I I, I feel like a lot of the problems in this revolve around the script, really. Yeah, and of course that's him, mostly. <laughs> that's right. Know, but... I mean, he wrote it. He's credited as the writer-director. And mm. I mean, like, the dialogue in this movie is just ridiculous for the most part. And even some of, like, the storyline and pacing is kind of ridiculous. Like, I kind of feel like they could have summed this movie up in a lot faster time than what they did, right? And not much happens. It's like, <clears throat> no. I feel like there's a movie that happens before this, and there's a movie that happens after this. Yep. Especially after this, because they're going off on their own as kind of like a starship or something. You know, second start of the right straight on till morning or something at the end mm-hmm. right and uh, you feel like he's like finally like put together a crew like you son of a bitch I'm in you know and they're all going to Canada right and so I feel like this is the wrong point of focus for this and I think part of that is because he based it off of partial script for something that he had done 20 years earlier yeah I mean it's just a misstep like fully and what I consider to be one of the greatest careers in horror film. I mean, I feel like Romero makes excellent horror movies and with very few movies that sort of like stand out as bad, you know, but this is just one of them for me, kind of. And I just I feel like his heart wasn't in it. You know what I mean? And I, he may have like been badgered into making this movie or like yeah. coerced in some sort of the way. The timing makes too much sense. Exactly. It's a reaction. He was pressured. He was like, well, if you're not going to do it, we're going to do it. Kind of like the new Matrix movie. They basically yeah. told the Wachowskis, if you're not going to do one, we're going to replace you. And so they did it and they made fun of it and they, and they kind of made a shitty movie. Because they, their heart wasn't in it, their passion wasn't in it, or there wasn't enough prep. You know, they they were forced to do it before they were ready and before they wanted to do it their way. You know, and I think Romero, that's very much the case here. You know, I feel like like you could come up with a thousand different examples of this, like say Lord of the Rings trilogy, right? Okay. He had three and a half years of prep to do that his way with the Hobbit series, much shittier, right? Mm-hmm. Way shittier. Zero days prep. What? It just bang. Like do it. Boom. Yeah. They were literally making the props and the sets and the costumes day of shooting. That's crazy. To do that. Right. Because there was no prep and it was all studio lit. Like Guillermo del Toro exited and they were like, Peter Jackson, you're directing now. We know you wanted to produce, but it's now your movie and you're shooting now. 
essentially. Right. And so like, that's kind of an aside, but I feel like something similar happened here. He was rushed before his time. He was giving a lot more moving parts that he didn't want. You know, he was trying to escape a studio system and ended up in a trap of another. And he has a response to this. Obviously he has two more movies that come out after land of the dead, right. That are a little bit more filmed in a way that is more Romero, right. And stories that are more Romero. And, And based on their rotten tomato score, they might even be shittier. You know, and they get shittier and shittier. Like, you literally look at the series, and it's like 90s. Like, 97, 93, and then 80-something percent, and then 70, and then 60. This was, like, in the 70% range or something, right? And so the next one we're going to do is 60-something. But I hope if it sucks, it will suck for the right reasons. Yes. And this does not suck for the right reasons. No. This sucks for all the wrong reasons. And, I mean, I just, like... It's a toothy blowjob. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, and I, I've only seen the last two movies one time when they first came out. And I mean, I feel like a lot of people didn't watch them at the time, or unless you were like a hardcore Romero fan or a hardcore of the dead, like zombie fan, you watch those movies. Right. But I'm not sure that a lot of other people did. And I think that kind of plays a part in its reception, right? At least for those last two. And I'm sure we'll talk about that when we get into those movies later on this month. Yeah. But I mean, he gets back to a place that's a little bit more of a downer, right? I mean, like there are some downer moments to this movie, but for the most part, it's just a series of events that happen to push a story along. There's just nothing else to it. Yeah. The characters are kind of one dimensional and forgettable. Yeah. There's a melancholy to his work and his other movies that uh, I feel like this one didn't have. This one was more morose than melancholy. Well, I feel like every single other one of his movies is melancholy. I feel like that's his like signature style when it comes to horror. And this one is not, he's just not used to making a big budget action kind of movie, you know? Yeah. One could even say that creep show is kind of melancholy in a way, Yeah, sure. you know? So, I mean, like, this is just not something that I feel he oh, wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. Where's my good land of the dead, Bedelia? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can tell you because there is a few really good moments in this movie, you know, outside of everything John Leguizamo, we've got some really good and creative uh, Romero gore here. That's right. We do. And I have, I've written down three that I absolutely fucking love. Okay. Right. There's like, there's like panning across the room with a flashlight and you see like a zombie woman with her hand all the way inside someone else's mouth and it kind of comes out and goes pop, you know? Yes. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, that's fucking gross. And I've never seen that before. And I do not remember that part in this movie. In fact, I mean, like most of the creatively like gore, gorious it's moments kind of movie. you miss it too. Like, right. Don't I look mean, down at your popcorn during that scene or you'll miss it, you know, but. So I was trying to figure out which version I was going to watch for this because apparently there's an unrated version. And I had texted Chris and I was just like, hey, there's a regular version and then a director's cut. Which one are we going to watch? And I was like, well, I don't, I don't know which one he's watching because we're watching it concurrently. I was like, I'm just going to go with the, the gorier one, apparently. And I thought this must have been something that was kept into the director's cut. Nope. But no, it's in the regular one. And it was fucking gnarly and amazing. I also watched it for free on Hulu. <laughs> yeah, I, I, pay, I bought it. I didn't even rent it. I bought it. You bought it? Yeah. On well, like Amazon or? Yeah, on Amazon. So now I can watch it. I literally used your Hulu account. <laughs> To watch it for free. <laughs> and you didn't realize. And I paid $15 to own it. <laughs> I'm so sorry. And I think I already owned it on DVD. I could have oh. just walked across the living room and opened up my DVD books to find it. But now I'm stupid. But yeah, no, the hand in the mouth thing was amazing. I was just like, ew, you know, and it's good. That's kind of what I live for in a fucking Romero zombie movie. Okay. And number two is that is the, it has to be the decapabite. 
Yes. Oh my god, I love it. Yeah. So there's like a pop-up scare, right? And it's like a zombie's right behind it, but it's headless. You're like, oh, okay, whatever. And you can actually see it on the person's face, like relief, like of whatever, I'll just push this back. Well, (laughs) whatever zombie it was, I think it's a priest. It's a priest. It happened and it was still like slivered on, but you can't tell. And so he flips forward. And his head is still attached to the very back and flips forward and just like <laughs> chomps Muppet style on the guy and just like bites the living shit out of him. He lives right great. on his fucking hand. I've yes. never seen something quite like that either. And I just thought it was great. <laughs> I mean, I was like laughing out loud at that moment too. And I'm probably clapping. I don't know. Like, First of all, it scared me. And then I was like, oh, and then it, and then it goes forward again and bites him. And then I'm like, ow. And we should have seen it coming because the zombie cannot survive without its head. We have to know it had a head. It was a perfectly constructed scare. That's right. It's amazing. Because it was like scare and then relief and then scare again (laughs) and then applauding. So what's your third one? Fingernails. Oh, my God. So when they're trying to get into dead reckoning, all the zombies are piling up around that truck or whatever Uh the fuck it is. Uh, One of them you can see like raking her fingers across and all her nails fingernails are breaking off from her fingers as she does it. And it's Uh, like, yeah, no, I I can't deal fingers like. I, I think we were talking offline a couple of weeks ago or something. Maybe I was talking about it with someone else, but it's like that first jackass movie, like all the shit they do, like porta potties getting like <laughs> rolled down a hill in a porta potty, all the stuff that you think that would make you barf that doesn't. The thing that the people talked about in the, in the, in, in the articles talking about the movie and what I experienced as well, people like passing out and stuff was literally like paper cuts in between your toes. Oh, they were doing God. paper cuts between people's toes and the webbing and people were throwing up. People were passing out. Not all that other stuff, not all the big stuff. It was something they did in a hotel room, just like they happened to film between the actual shots they were going to do, right? But it's something like that, right? That's gross. Like all the things in this movie, the hand in the mouth, the decap bite, all the, the gore that they do, they do a tear apart with intestines, which is Romero has to do at this point. But that fingernail thing, that's the thing that actually turned my stomach. I have never seen Jackass. And so like, I'm just like sitting over here, like clutching my fucking pearls. Like that sounds <laughs> awful. I do not want to see that. Christ. But no, yeah, fingernails, when those those zombies' fingernails were coming off, I kept thinking, like, good thing that zombie can't feel it. Like, really, because that just is shocking and awful to me. It's like that scene in uh, Sons of the Lambs where she sees, like, fingernails, like, stuck. So someone trying to claw their way out of yeah. that, that fucking well. Yeah, I don't like fingernails coming off. No, I don't like seeing people pick fingernails out of, like, the, the walls. Like, I think that mm-hmm. happens in the ring as well. Yes. Like. Yeah, I don't like that. No. Bones breaking, fingernails coming Completely off. Completely bloodless. No no ooze or pus or anything like that. Just fingernails breaking. And I was like, nope. No, no, no. I mean, there's lots of gore in this movie, right? Which, which, like you just said, is sort of a Romero staple. You know, you you cannot have a Romero zombie movie and not have someone like bisected with their intestines like flailing everywhere, right? It's yeah. just like you have to have it. And I mean, so it's it's it delivers on that aspect at least. Yeah, right. No, it does. I'd watch it again for some of those things, at least clips. You know, that's right. And, and a lot of that, we have to give some props to Nicotero. You know, like he he's a good zombie makeup effects artist, and I mean the movie delivers in places that it doesn't. You know, at least it makes up for it with some of the, the zombies. Yeah. So, so what's it all about? <laughs> I don't fucking know. <laughs> so yeah, obviously it's about the haves versus the have-nots, the rich versus the poor, the middle class. And lower classes fighting one another that we see in, in reality, you know, with the puppet strings of the, of the elite and them, of course, being the only winners. But, you know, there's better examples of this just off the top of my head. Snowpiercer, uh, Parasite, you know, uh, I think things before and after this have done better jobs at this because this just hits you over the head and is almost too cartoony, you know, of a, you know, of an, an analogy, you know, or a metaphor. 
Well, and why in 2005? Yeah. You know, like why, why was 2005 the time for Romero to say like, we're going to have a movie about like classist American society. I would have loved to see something more post 9-11. You know what I mean? Yes. You know, I mean like a little bit further down the road, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like it was a little too soon to do that. And I, I, I can see the kind of message that he has here. Um, it's just, it seems like slapdash and it seems like he didn't really get his point across. If he even had one, he was just like, well, if we have to come up with something that we're going to do this, you know? Yeah. It's almost like he, he just came up with a MacGuffin. You know what I mean? Like, here's the thing it's going to be about and we'll build everything around it, you know? And then let no subtlety, you know? And like I said, I feel like he was rushed. I feel like he, he picked up the scraps of that, what he had already didn't build much on top of it. And then like put it on the template of a, of a fucking Snyder movie. Yeah. Cause I, I kind of feel like the, the idea of a, a classist American society society has a, a bigger place in the eighties than it does in 2005. You know what I mean? I feel or like, even today. Yeah. You know, I, I just don't, I don't see like the early two thousands as being something that I look back and remember the huge differences between the rich and the poor. Yeah. That wasn't a huge eat the rich moment. You know, it was much more about, you know, I feel like the best thing that was post nine 11, in my opinion, around that time was Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. You know, and it's all about terrorism. It's all about the other. It's all about tribalism. Uh, it's not really about status, but it's about, you know, trust and paranoia and humanity and, and things like that. And, you know, explore that. You know, there's a lot of things you could do there with a zombie environment. Well, I kind of feel like Snyder's Dawn of the Dead is a much better post 9-11 kind of zombie movie. There's a lot of distrust amongst the people oh, yeah. in that film. You know yeah. what I mean? And he just explores it a lot better. That's well, very much a post 9-11 <clears throat> So, I mean, like, or maybe Romero was ahead of his time and he was looking to today, you know, I'm because I, I kind of feel like people well, you are said it would be better in the 80s. Well, guess what? It was written in the 80s. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So <laughs> I mean, you say it feels like that. Well, there's a reason. <laughs> there's a reason that really simplistic, like 80s Romero dialogue, you know, and of course, there, there it's kind of like his own reverence. He's become a victim of his own reverence here because. Uh, as we've seen, I, I feel like all these people that that wanted to make a Romero movie with him and give him more money and all these things that were influencing him and all the timing and the pressure, but not giving him the feedback he needed, you know, like okay. George Lucas and the prequels or something. When you're a living legend, no one wants to give you that feedback. No one wants to give you notes when they desperately need it. They're still human, you know, and I feel like uh, like I, I got this um, this little anecdote here, like this little clip from other filmmakers, right? Um, because I was trying to ask, like, why are we seeing such high critic ratings? Mm-hmm. Why are we seeing such huge praise for this movie in the industry, but not with audiences? And when I can say relatively, especially relatively, but almost objectively, that this movie is not good, no. right? Yeah. And so here's an example of the cult of Romero, right? And here's a quote. Several filmmakers, including John Landis, Eli Roth, Clive Barker, and Guillermo del Toro, paid tribute to Romero in the Land of the Dead special. Guillermo del Toro said, Finally, someone was smart enough to realize that it was about time and gave George the tools. It should be a cause of celebration amongst us all that Michelangelo has started another ceiling. It's really a momentous occasion. Fuck that. I mean, that's Michelangelo like a lot of in a ceiling. That's how insulated he was. You know, he's not going to get feedback from the, the likes of his peers, even, you know, or the newer peers like Guillermo del Toro or fucking Clive Barker could have given him some, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's like, stop jacking him off and actually help him, you know? 
And I mean, I'm a huge, huge Romero fan. You know what I mean? Like he's my favorite horror director. And I, I think that his canon is as a whole, really, really good. I think this is like one of the only missteps in his career. Even some of the shittier movies, you know, I, I think are good. Um, this one, not so much. And I like when I was looking through some of the critical responses, right, trying to pick out some of the best ones, there were a lot of really good reviews of this movie. And mm. I'm like, okay, I just don't see it. You know, I was trying to find some really good, funny, bad ones, and there just weren't that many to choose from, yeah. you know? So, yeah, I get it. And I, I feel like, yeah, if, if you you have somebody who is considered to be like horror royalty, right? And they're finally given the tools, like Del Toro says, to make a high budget movie. Sometimes they shouldn't do that. You know, just let them do what they're already good at and don't don't force them into this this box where they're like, we're, we're going to make some money and you're going to do it. Like, really, he he did this movie probably because, I mean, just to have his name on it essentially like we talked about earlier yeah i don't know so we'll never do yes uh, do you have any fun facts about this one? Oh my god do i oh yay i have four <laughs> <laughs> and it's up to you fun is in the eye of beholder okay let's see so at the beginning of the movie if you listen carefully to the tuba and the tambourine uh zombies in the town bandstand they're actually playing notes in kind of slow motion for the gonk yeah which is the mall music from uh george romero's dawn of the dead from 1978 this is one of my favorite parts of this movie because it's like the opening right yeah and it just this movie starts very silly right with like zombies playing instruments in the fucking gazebo and i'm just like okay we're in for a good ride and then it's just downhill from there yeah okay so fiddler's green (laughs) is a song about the place where cavalrymen go when they die located halfway down the trail to hell and in the end advocates suicide by pistol when death is certain and the hostiles are closing in oh so it's a metaphorical Fiddler's Green. I don't think the people who live in this Fiddler's Green would do that. Uh, but that's why that's named it. Okay. All right. So Dennis Hopper based his performance or lack of as Kaufman on Donald Rumsfeld. <laughs> <laughs> makes so much more sense now. <laughs> that is a fun fact. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. yeah, I can see it. So in later interviews... Romero implied that Dennis Hopper's cigar budget cost more than his original Night of the Living Dead movie. Probably. Yep. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Well, those were fun facts. Kinda. I like that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I want to hear the song Fiddler's Green now for sure. <laughs> but we have some questions to ask about Land of the Dead, like we do about every movie we deep dive into here at the Film Flamers. And we're going to start with, well, Chris, at this point... <laughs> This is the fourth movie in the Of the Dead series, and I think we've all noticed a series of random, sometimes funny, costumes on our zombies. Mm. So, when you become a zombie, what are you going to be wearing? Or which one would I like to see? Because, <laughs> you know, it's so famous. Like, we, we see, like, the bride in this one. We see the priest. We see, like, the the clown and we see everything else. And especially it was famously uh day of the dead. There's all kinds of shit. There's mm-hmm. like ballerinas. Like most people are in some weird costume. That's right. Nurses or some bullshit. Yeah. yeah. This is like normal clothes. 
And so that's just something that Romero loves to do. I think, you know, it's like, what would, what would I rather see? Like, I don't know. I'd, I'd like to see like the, the S and M guys or something from some sort of gay leather bar, like zombies <laughs> going around, see what they do. You know what I mean? Love it. Um, but you know, I'd also see like drag Queens and drag, you know, like with like, you know, just all like unkempt, but it's like, you can't really tell. So they all kind of look like Grimlina. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be fun. I think if I were a zombie, if I'm going to be like traipsing around the world for the end of time, just like a living dead, I'm going to be walking around with one high heel on and in a fur and a hard hat just because. Okay. I mean, that seems Romero-esque. Yeah. But seriously, were you scared while watching Land of the Dead? Uh, I jumped a couple times, but no, there was no like creeping dread or fear or anything like that. No, I mean, like, yeah, there were some jump scares and that one really effective one. And there's some really good gross out moments, too. But ultimately, no, I didn't feel very scared while watching this movie. I don't think I felt scared watching this in the theater when it came out. No, I don't remember that either. I don't remember liking it much when I came out of it. I was like, well, it was the right time. I mean, I I felt like it was okay. Yeah. When I saw it, I don't remember being. I wasn't happy and I wasn't like, I was like, okay, well, that was an interesting way to spend two hours. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't like. Now what? <laughs> and then I feel like I feel like I liked it a little bit better when I saw it the second time. And so I was kind of interested to to watch this one again just to see where my thoughts and emotions were. So I guess that kind of leads us into our next question. Then out of five stars, what would you give Land of the Dead? I gave it a 2.5. I also gave it two and a half stars. Yeah. Which is kind of low for me. Yeah. I mean, that's just like half a star down from what I gave Hellraiser Bloodline, I think. No, it's the same. Oh, is it the same? Great. I think like you're, you were either a two or two and a half for Bloodline. Yeah, I think I think it was two and a half. I think I finally got never going to touch a three because you actively disliked that. And I mean, I could have given Land of the Dead a three stars at some point in my life when I watched it. Certainly not this time. Like I, I feel like we've spent the last several years talking about much better movies in this franchise. And this one kind of disappoints on many, many levels. Not even kind of, it does. Yep. Like it's just, it's not good. I don't, I don't feel like it goes in the right direction for the franchise. It feels out of place and it's, it almost feels redundant. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, it it just is what it is and it's not part of it, you know? And I would just rather go back and watch those earlier movies than this one. Yeah. So, but, um, most importantly, who's the hottest guy in land of the dead? There's a special place in my heart for John Leguizamo. Amen. He's the national treasure. Yes. He can do anything. He was in Romeo and Juliet Mm -hmm. as the Prince of Cats. That's right. And he was a fucking spawn as the fat fucking clown. <laughs> Can you believe it? Yeah. And then he was in Tu Wong Fu as a drag queen and uh, all these other things, you know, and he's done stand up and like he's such a talented person. And I always love seeing him and he always does a good job. I will stand by the fact that he should have gotten at least an Oscar nomination for Tu Wong Fu. He got a Golden Globe nomination, but he deserved an Oscar nomination, if not the win, for that. He was perfect in that movie. Yeah. And he's good in this movie. He's enjoyable. He's funny. And, I mean, like, the best part of this movie really is a shirtless John Leguizamo doing random pull-ups in Dead Reckoning. So, I mean, I'll stand by that. Yeah. Like, he's just just hot. He's hot. Yeah. So. Unlike his cardboard cutout, go star. That's right. Simon Baker even sounds like a cardboard company brand. <laughs> I mean, like, where'd you get that box? 
Simon Baker. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on Land of the Dead. Thank God. But... We want to know what you think about this movie. You can tell us over on social media at the Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Do you love it? Do you like it? Do you hate it? Just tell us. You could also let us know by emailing us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or, better yet, call us at 972-666-7733. Shoot me in the front. Oh, Fiddler Migraine. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> I can't even go on. I can't top that. <laughs> Guys, like we said earlier, we have another movie in this series to talk about as a deep dive, and that is Diary of the Dead. That'll be coming up next week. But we're going to finish up the franchise over on Patreon with a bonus episode on Survival of the Dead. So head to patreon.com slash thefilmflamers and check it out. Well, Robert, I'm all tuckered out and I need to go spend some time on Fiddler's Green. <laughs> you go fiddle your green? <laughs> I need to go fiddle my green. <laughs> oh, with, I'm going to face some dead reckoning with that, too. With uh, Dunbar or whatever this is. Denbo? Denbo. <laughs> you can go fiddle your Denbo? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I'm sure you'll have some sweet dreams. We didn't even talk about the fact that Asia Argento is a, ra- a rapist. Oh, my God. Yeah. Or to come with that, maybe. A legend. A legend. A legend rapist. Look it up. Dot com. Oh my god. <laughs> the Muffin Man? <laughs> <laughs>